Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you subscribe to The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, two longtime friends who have had this podcast since 1973. Yeah, that's how long. It was even before podcasts they were having this. These guys spent their whole life arguing with each other. And now we just record it and they go at it. They talk about everything pop culture. It is one of the most popular pop culture podcasts, especially valuable during Game of Thrones season. But uh, they'll argue about movies, music, TV, you name it. The Watch, one of the best pop culture podcasts on the internets. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Because that's what it, the story is. It is sort of a parable of, of the death of childhood and the death of a world of imagination and magic that you will never experience again in life. I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and here's the big picture. There's really only one movie out this weekend that people are going to care about, and with good reason. It's the latest adaptation of Stephen King's It, and I'm happy to report that it's great. Scary and sweet in equal measure. I read It as a teenager, and I can still picture my parents' dog-eared copy. I love the 1990 ABC miniseries starring Tim Curry. The new movie captures something new and something old about the story that I think people are really going to like. The director of the new movie, Andy Muschietti, is here to talk about his vision of It what King thought of his movie, and where he's going next with it. But before we talk to Andy, I'm joined by Ringer staff writer and Stephen King fan Kate Nibbs to talk all things It. Kate, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Kate, you told me last week that you were rereading the book It, written by Stephen King. Why are you rereading this book? So It was one of the only horror movies and books that I was allowed to read as a child. And I was especially obsessed with the, the 1990 miniseries, actually, so I rewatched that as well. And then I just decided to give the novel another go. I had also been alerted to something I forgot about the novel, which is just some very bizarre scenes in it that haven't aged well involving a child orgy. And I just felt like I had to read it and, and see if it was real. So Andy Muschietti and I talked about that a little bit, and we kind of talked around mm-hmm. it. But well, I don't understand, especially because there was a child orgy in this book, but for many other reasons, <laughs> why was that the one book and miniseries you were allowed to read and watch as a kid? Well, the miniseries was not rated. And I don't know, my parents thought because it was a clown, it was funny, and I could watch it. I, you might have to ask them. Also, my friends really loved watching the miniseries and reading the book, so it was sort of a communal activity. And we felt like it was appropriate because the book and movie are about a group of tweens, which we were, although we were mostly all girls and definitely didn't have basically any parallel experiences to the kids in the book. Yeah. So famously, the story is about this group of friends who call themselves the losers. And it's it's Mm -hmm. six boys and one girl, right? Yes. And they encounter an evil clown who is a manifestation of lost childhood, possibly, any number of things called Pennywise. What did you make of the Pennywise character and just the whole construction of the story going back and rereading it as an adult? It's really interesting because what I remembered of Pennywise was like the Tim Curry portrayal from the miniseries where he's this sort of really showboaty, sort of funny clown. And then the book, it only one manifestation of it is Pennywise. It comes in a lot of different forms that will be a werewolf, it will be a giant bird, it will be someone's parent. In the book, it makes it a lot clearer that it's not just a clown. The clown is one form it can take. It's really this sort of 
structural evil that's like the scaffolding of the city of Derry that both the book and movies are set in Derry, Maine, which uh, I guess is like a stand-in for where Stephen King is from. Aside from the the aforementioned child orgy, was there anything else in the book that stuck <laughs> out to you as kind of uh, strange or didn't just, just didn't, didn't feel very 2017? Yeah, I liked how King develops the relationship between the kids in general, but some of their dialogue, one of the kids, Richie, who was portrayed by Seth Green in the 1990 uh, miniseries, he like does these voices because he's supposed to be a comedian and some of the voices are like very racist. <laughs> oh no. So, yeah, so it was it was a little jarring to, to read that and like none of the other kids really comment on the fact that his voices are completely inappropriate. They just are like, shut up, beep, beep, Richie, like ha ha ha. And um, it was weird to reread. I can report that that character in the new movie is played by Finn Wolfhard, who is Mikey from okay. Stranger Things, and he, he he does not use racist voices. That is that is really good to hear. A relief. Although I kind of wish that Seth Green would have gotten to make a cameo because he's pretty good. <laughs> he would have been a good Pennywise, to be honest. Yeah, I wonder. Maybe he was busy. Um, <laughs> you know, also when I was rereading the book, it reminded me of Stranger Things. And I think Stranger Things kind of owes a debt to it in the way that it imagines this, like, boys club infiltrated by a girl fighting evil. I think that's definitely true. We're kind of in an interesting moment where everything created between 1977 and 1987 is now fit for, is, is nostalgia bait, right? Mm-hmm. So are you going to move on any other uh, King adaptations or are you just sticking with it because the movie's coming out? It is so long, Sean. Like, I thought I would be able to read it in a few days, but it's 1,500 pages. So I'm like, just, I'm just about to finish, but it took longer than I thought. I would like to reread The Shining because that was another one of my favorite books as an adolescent. I have a feeling it will hold up pretty well. I also, I read like all the ones that had sort of silly monsters. I read Christine and Pet Cemetery and Cujo when I was a lot younger and I might give them another go to see how they hold up. All right, well, in praise of uh, the long novel and the good Stephen King adaptation, Kate Nibs, thanks for coming on and chatting with me. Thanks for having me. And now here's my interview with Andy Muschietti. I'm really excited to be joined by Andy Muschietti today. Andy, you are the director of It, which is the most anticipated movie of the fall. You must I am. be very excited. Yeah, last time I checked... <laughs> So, Andy, 10 years ago, you were living in Argentina, mm-hmm. and you had made a short film called Mama, mm-hmm. and no one knew who you were, and now you're here today chatting with me. How, how did this happen? To walk us through the last 10 years of your life a little bit. Well, actually, 10 years ago, I was in Barcelona. I moved in the year 2001 from Buenos Aires to Barcelona, chasing um, a commercial directing gig that I was offered, and I stayed there for 14 years. I had my production company there, very different uh, cultures in spite of what you might think that, you know, Spain and Argentina, this is the motherland and stuff. But I was doing commercials in Spain, my sister as a producer, and we had our own company. All through that period, I was writing scripts and making shorts and stuff. And Mama was one of those pieces that sort of stood out a little bit. And with the help of diffusion through YouTube, it became like some sort of little phenomenon because it was a three-minute short and it got some attention. Guillermo del Toro, obviously, uh, it seemed like he noticed it and, and played a part somehow in, in bringing you to oh, for sure. stateside culture. How did, how did that happen? Well, we were already starting um, 
a version of a production in Spain for the feature movie. But things in Spain are, you know, sometimes they depend too much on the economy of the moment. So it wasn't really starting as fast as we were expecting. And one day Guillermo del Toro called us and he said, I love the short, man. <laughs> and he offered his help to produce the movie. Was your hope always to be making films in Hollywood? Is that what you want? You and your sister wanted? Uh, not really. I studied film in Argentina. My goal was to make movies, no matter where. Hollywood was a little bit of a, a long shot. It was never a present reality. So my ambition was to make movies that I liked. But of course, like, you know, it's sort of a back burner dream in a way where you always sort of fantasize of making a movie that has that kind of diffusion and, and distribution because that's what Hollywood movies have, the power of international distribution. So many more people can see it. What were the kind of movies that you liked that you wanted to make? Well, horror was a long time love for me. Because I started watching horror movies as a kid, and it became some sort of an addiction for me. Was there a catalyzing movie? Was there one that you saw that just kind of set you off on a path? Well, it, it wasn't a horror movie, but it, it terrified me. It was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Hmm. I saw it when I was five on a drive-in in Buenos Aires, and it, at the same time, I had like you know that feeling of magic and horror because I, you know it was all going well until the last sequence when the alien. <laughs> queen comes out of the, of the ufo and it, it was like what the hell is that so yeah at five you can imagine like those things are, are very impressive to you fitting time too because it turned 40 and it's weirdly in theaters this weekend i don't know if you saw that close encounters they put it back it in did. theaters yeah, yeah yeah oh i can't wait to see that again i haven't seen it in a while that yeah. makes sense though that there is a little bit of a spielbergian wonder in uh the two films you've made in hollywood uh, absolutely. Well, like Spielberg came in a little later. My first contact with horror movies were after Close Encounters. I seven, eight years old. I was like stuck in front of the TV Saturday nights. It was a family activity. I would like watch movies. And the, the, probably the ones that really, really uh, left an impact on me were The Omega Man. Really? <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. I, I remember one called Manster. This was this show, this TV show on Saturday nights. It was presented by a, an actor, a Spanish actor that was sort of like a, a Spanish Lon Chaney. His name was Narciso Ibanez Menta. He was a legendary actor from the 40s and 50s. So he would introduce this TV show and they would show every, every kind of horror movie from the, you know, universal monsters like Hammer to more trippy 60s and 70s movies like Dr. Fives. Oh yeah, sure, the Vincent Price film, yeah. Yeah, that blew my mind. And scared me a lot. I mean, there was a trilogy of terror. I remember that that third episode with a Zuni doll just like terrified me. And it was sort of like a seminal experience. I've uh, heard Guillermo talk about trilogy of terror too. He does. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we're, he's older than me, but he, you know, growing up in a Latin American country where the movies that we saw were like sort of in the same period of time, probably. And yeah, yeah, it's good to find like, you know, Someone that, that has your same references. And when we started talking with Guillermo, it was like, yeah, oh, Zunidal. Yeah, remember that? It was so <laughs> scary. <laughs> so yeah. when you're you know, a teenager and you're growing up, are you imagining you're going to be a filmmaker? Is that, your, is that your aspiration? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I wanted to actually to drop high school to enter film school, but <laughs> it wasn't a good idea. Like my parents didn't, didn't approve. So as soon as I finished high school, I went into film school and, and then, you know, I got in contact with other kind of films. So I sort of became a little more cultivated in world cinema. That was my love for Italian cinema started and other genres too. Like I'm a big fan of uh, Italian comedy too. It's part of my upbringing. 
Yeah, you can see that wended through both of your films, especially it. So it is a significantly larger production. There's a lot mm-hmm. of characters, a lot of speaking parts. Yeah. You know, you're diving into Stephen King's world. Were there more challenges to doing something this big or did you feel prepared to do something at this level? No, I always feel prepared in the sense that, you know, I grew up reading Stephen King, which is something that came hand in hand with my film experience. Yeah, if you fall in love with horror movies, you kind of fall in love with Stephen King at the same time, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I started, my passion for horror started before, but when when I started reading Stephen King around 13, 14 years old, a new world opened, a world that was like more layered, and I started thinking of characters and, and story. Were you very devoted to the books? Oh, yeah. When did you first come across it? Well, my first experience was Pet Cemetery. Okay. I was like 13 or something. And then I went into like his short stories, like Skeleton Crew and Night Shift. I remember reading some of his Richard Bachman books, like yeah. Thinner, I remember. <laughs> I always then, had a hard time figuring out how funny he was trying to be in those books, you know, like yeah. how serious they were. Thinner in particular, I was like, is this a comedy? Is he, I, I couldn't, I couldn't well, always put my finger always, on it. Stephen King is, you know, he doesn't shy away from singing the, the reader from one tone to the other. And yeah, it, sometimes it's weird. Uh, you know, I remember in Thinner, now that we're, we're talking about it, this, this guy who's the victim of the spell. He's looking for, for the gypsy community and he's in the middle of the night and he can't see anything, but he knows that the gypsies has dogs and suddenly he hears a weird sound and he recognizes that it's a, a dog's fart. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he comes to the conclusion that he's close to the gypsy camp. I mean, he has that scatological uh, level of humor that it's, uh, sometimes it's weird, but but it's uh, it's interesting and it comes with him and you know, the great thing is I learned storytelling in big part from Stephen King. So how do you honor that tonal shift, though? Because your movie is very funny. It's also extraordinarily scary. Plus, it's, you. you know, it's it's sentimental mm-hmm. at times. It's nostalgic. How do you work all those things together? That's very difficult to pull off. Well, you know, there is a balance and it's not arbitrary. Humor and emotion in a horror movie are there to make you connect emotionally with the characters. I learned love for characters from Stephen King because he's, you know, fixated with the description and the psychology and backstories of the characters. So that sort of came natural to me. It is a part, like, even though I, I love horror movies, I have that counterbalance narrative, which is, okay, yeah, you're trying to scare people, but you also want people to like the characters and care for them before the monster attacks. So you care for them. And so you're more engaged in the story. That's roughly what it is. And you don't get that from, that's not a lesson you're taught from the big bulk of horror movies. In fact, there's so many that or subgenres that that are about like wanting the characters to die. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's some some distaste or some lack of development. And this the, the less the characters develop, the more likely they are probably to be killed, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think they they make a point. In slasher movies, it's like, yeah, you need uh, you want them to, yeah, to get meat. it. Yeah. 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 And I'm not a fan of those movies at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I was never into slashers uh, or anything. So I learned more storytelling from Stephen King than from movies in general, probably. That's why when it happened, I sort of understood, okay. We need people to to get to the heart of the story and the soul of the characters and really get that emotional connection. And, and an emotional connection to childhood, too. You know, we've all been children. It, of all his, his work, probably is the most loving letter to childhood. And I wanted to bring that to the movie. What What role does King play in something like this? Does he have to approve of you to sort of to bless you to do this or does he just say go and make your film and, and good luck yeah more like the second yeah that doesn't mean that he didn't approve he d- he did sign off on an early draft 
before I was in the project because you know that this project has been in development for like six years or something. Yeah, I want to ask you about that too, what it's like to come on to something that another filmmaker has left and then how to make it your own too. That must be a challenge. Yeah, but I'll tell you about King and then we can talk about the other filmmaker. So Stephen did not interfere with the production or, or the, all the development while I was directing. So it wasn't until the movie was finished that he asked to see it. Were you nervous about that? Yeah, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't nervous before. <laughs> Uh, I was doing my thing, la, 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 you know, <laughs> reimagining it. Nervous about making those choices? <laughs> no, no, because, you know, for me, it was about like finding my vision of the story because I, otherwise it's strange. You have to own it. And of course, there's a recognition of the work and a love for the essence of the story of the book. But I really, I really wanted to go back to my own emotional experience when reading the book for the first time and translating it into a movie that... I would relate to as an adult. I also read the book like 25 years later and I found a lot of things I didn't remember. They weren't in my memories or emotional memories. I wonder how people will respond to the movie because of that too. Obviously, this movie in some ways is halved because we only get one side of the story of the yeah. losers, this this group of young kids. Yeah. But I think that some people will misremember the book in some ways or they'll see something in the movie that they think maybe was in the book but wasn't. You know, it'll be an interesting to see how people parse it too. I know. Well, some people might miss that dialogue between the two timelines mm -hmm. because in the book it's, it's clearly it's present day and we jump to the past and there are like these interludes which are like everything that, that Mike Hanlon has written in those 27 years of research. But you have strictly isolated the story to the kids as kids. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, I'm 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 emotionally attached to the loser story, to the losers when they were kids. And I didn't want to interfere with that journey. Mm -hmm. You can credibly see though that like there yeah. is a version of the book maybe that plays out the way that you've done it as well. I could see a version of the book that the first oh. half is like this and then maybe the second half is the adult lives of the totally. losers, you know? Yeah. It doesn't seem forced in any way. I know. It's just the way that Stephen King chose to tell the story. But it's still a factor that I want to bring in a second part. First part, it was for me like a pure and uninterfered version of their story. But I still think that, you know, if we get to tell the second half of the movie, the adults, there has to be a connection to their to childhood. Because the whole story for me, it's about childhood and the magic of that era of those years and, and the end of childhood. You need those kids to not grow up too fast then. I know. It's, it's I've been tricky. talking to their parents. <laughs> Stunt their I growth. No, I didn't no ask vitamins. for anything specific. Just like, you know, you know. You know. What's good for them but, is good for yeah. you. <laughs> so, you know, as you said, you, you came on after another filmmaker had been developing the project. How radically does it change? And what do you have to do then to make it your project? It's not too complex of a process. It's pretty natural when you're reading. I mean, you have this story in your heart. And then you're given a script that someone else wrote. Immediately, ideas and thoughts surface. Like, oh, they're missing this thing. Or, you know, oh, why isn't this character in? Or, you know, oh, I'd like to make this incarnation different. So it was natural. I think it's, in fact, it's probably easier than starting from scratch. You have an outline and then you can pick and choose where you want to build. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about um, building Pennywise. For many people, there's a vision of Pennywise. There's the cover of the book, and then there's the 1990 miniseries. Tim mm -hmm. Curry was the, the clown. So how did you go about building your own Pennywise and, and casting Bill Skarsgård? I wanted to stay true to the essence of Pennywise, the Stephen King character, but bring something new, and more edgy, and more layered to the character, which does not oppose his description of the character at all. Just, you know, there's some spaces left 
on his creation of the character that that's where I wanted to to sing the spoon. And there was, because there's little crumbles and bits of information that don't mean a lot for a reader, but that you can like grab them and, and, and make them flourish or blossom. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to really expand on? Yeah, well, there's a bit where Pennywise is described as a creature that that is not very good at emulating human emotions, which is, you know, <laughs> pretty challenging for a shapeshifter who uses that as a bait. Right. <laughs> and that's something that I loved and that I wanted to bring to the character. I don't think people really have that in mind when they think of Pennywise, because, you know, even in the book, he's described, he's sort of articulated and he's always acting like a clown. And there's also these reflections that uh, all living things must abide by the laws of the shape they inhabit. So uh, as a reader, you imagine that the clown is always acting like a clown. But then he says that little thing. Like he wasn't too good at mimicking human emotions. And I wanted to take that to fruition. And, and you can see, I mean, if you see, you see the movie, there's a... There's a moment of trickstery when in the opening scene when Pennywise is talking to Georgie and everything seems to be going all right. And at that point, something happens. I don't want to spoil it, but something weird happens. And, and that's where everything gets twisted a little bit. Yeah, lack of empathy is revealed, right? And then things go blank. Yeah, yeah. it's a weird moment. But again, he's a, he's a creature that likes to play with his victim and he doesn't care. His mimicking is not perfect. Because he knows he's he's got the bait. Then there's this this other thing that stuck to me a lot, and it's also like a little bit of information a crumble. The story in the book is told through the eyes of the of the losers, and so it's very speculative when it comes to the monster and the nature of the monster. But there's a there's a passage where Bill is reflecting on on the monster, and he says maybe it eats children because that's what we're told that monsters do. So immediately, like, you connect to the idea that maybe this monster is real, but only if it's alive in the imagination of children. Doesn't, doesn't mean that it's not real. Yeah, yeah you artfully mm-hmm. don't totally answer that question all the time, right? You don't feel the need to kind of, like, clarify the pure logic of the story. Because no, Because no. that would kind of ruin no, what you're building towards, right? Oh, definitely not a subject that is, like, explained to Overkill. It's just mentions here. Bill, the hero... He's always trying to convince his friends that what is happening is not real. Out of faith, leaps of faith that, or perception that he has. He doesn't have the certainty that that's not real, but he, you know, it's, it's about belief, basically. And, and what about Bill Skarsgård? What did he uh, bring to the part? And, and how, do you, yeah. how do you direct an actor that is transforming all the time and that may not be real depending on the interpretation of the character? Well, this is this last thing we talked about, like, you know, the, the possibility of, of it being a product of children's imagination was something that we kept between us, you know, talking about the, the nature and the psychology of this monster because it's not human. So you have to hold to something. We were, like, basically talked for hours about, about what Pennywise was and how he behaves. We concluded that we wanted to bring horror through a different angle than people expected, and that came through the unpredictability and the ban- madness of the character. And Bill took that concept and started building the character with that base of uh, unpredictability. And I let him do it. Was it difficult yeah. for him to stay in that character for a long period of time? I feel like there's something, it's it's pretty high level he maniacal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, like there were like, you know, long sequences that took length shots and stuff. 
But in, normally he wouldn't stay in character for a whole day. In fact, when the cameras were not rolling, he would like just sit down there and and catch a breath. Yeah, <laughs> because he's always he's so physical and he's like the character is so is so physical. Yeah, it's relentless. Yeah, chasing and 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 crawling and always like it's incredible what what Bill did. I don't know if he he knew that the character would end up being so physical. It was an exploration for me and for him, like working together in this character. We had a concept, but then. He was exploring how that concept will shine through in the movie. And he grabbed that concept and took it to the maximum. And he would surprise me sometimes because he wouldn't give you like the same thing in the next take. You know, that's what's so great about Bill. Uh, he really took the concept of unpredictability and, and really brought it to life. You didn't yeah. tell me what uh, what King said when he saw the movie. Mm. Well, I was a little concerned, of course, like two days before, because it was like very fast. He said, oh, Stephen King wants to see the movie. We're sending like the DCP to Florida. He's there. He wants to see it by, uh, by himself uh, in a movie theater. And he has been so, critical in the past of some adaptations. You know, oh, he's yeah. not necessarily an easy critic. Of course, because, yeah. you know, he's like probably the most uh, adapted writer alive. On the other hand, he has like a very open-minded about adaptations and he understands that the adaptation is a work on its own. So he embraces adaptations and... He had a lot of experiences, and probably The Shining was sort of seminal experience. In, in it's pretty vocal about his displeasure with the, yeah. the original, yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. that was like you know he probably hit a wall there, and mm-hmm. I don't know, or maybe started shaping his opinions about adaptations. But he embraces them now, and still he was like, "I'm gonna watch it by myself. I don't need the filmmaker to be next to me." And I understand obviously mm-hmm. because he, if he disliked the movie, he don't, you don't want to have the filmmaker next to you, and. So I wrote a letter with the DCP, a handwritten letter, and it was basically like asking for indulgence and forgiveness for <laughs> all the all the liberties that I took. And I wasn't there, but from what I know, he loved it. And he, in fact, wrote an email back saying how much he had loved it. Was that meaningful to you? Were you happy that you got oh, the yeah. cosign? Yeah. yeah, because he didn't need to. Yeah. You know, it was something that, that came very spontaneous from him. And he immediately after seeing it, he wrote me an email. And I couldn't believe that I had a, an email from Stephen King on my inbox. And the first sentence I read is, it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that could be interpreted a number of different ways, right? It using Just oh, using the title, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there was a, a feeling of relief and, and joy at that point. And at the end, like maybe as a joke, but he said, don't worry about the all the things you've changed. All the changes are approved. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I know you've been asked about before. There's like a very famous, strange scene near the end of the loser story in the book. Oh, yeah. It's quite sexual in nature mm-hmm. that I, I will be honest, I have always found a little bit confounding um, when I read Everyone it. Everyone <laughs> found it confounding. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously you made some choices with that scene. Um, yeah, but it, it wasn't for me. It wasn't was not about a moral thing. In the book, it comes out as a broad metaphor of the passage between childhood to adulthood. You know, these, these are kids that are on the verge of losing childhood and facing the horrors of, of what's on the other side. Because that's what it, the story is. It is like sort of a parable of, of the death of childhood and the death of a world of, of imagination and magic that you will never experience again in life. So everything that is not the childhood is a threatening force. So the adults are the antagonists because they corrode. In, in a way, the adulthood eats childhood and eats that world of magic. That's why they call it the, the eater of worlds. Yeah. He's not eating planets. It's funny he too. He eats worlds of faith. This movie in particular kind of reduces people to a childlike impulse though. You know, that sort of like base fear where you're 
just or you're laughing, but mostly you're just sort of like, I feel so tense and I'm very afraid. And it's a very distinct and pure feeling, right? It's not yeah. the complications of adulthood. Well, it's the anxiety of being 13 too, I think. All your life you've been a child and suddenly things start changing, you know, and you have like, you probably enter high school. In my, in my case, it was very much defined by going to high school where you were in, like in the same patio with 18-year-old guys that were like mean and, and, and bullies and was a big change and also your mind changes and also from from the emotional perspective i was in love with a girl for seven years growing up and for, when i turned 12 to 13 it went away yeah. my, there's something changing and there's like signals that are very specific that you're you're not the same person anymore something dies it, it is somehow related to an analogy of, of being an artist and needing to have that child with you and it's impossible because being an artist is, is basically building things from nothing so you need that Im imagination to, you know, believe in things that don't exist. That's what children do. As an artist, as an adult, you need that power too, but you don't have it anymore. That's an interesting segue, right? Because yeah. the reviews of the film have been good and it looks like it's going to make a lot of money. So then now maybe your life changes somewhat. <laughs> um, how do you define success personally for the movie? And then also, how do you figure out what you want to do next? I want to keep telling stories that mean something to people. And whether they are like horror or comedy or, or, or drama or science fiction or musicals, I think, uh, because I love all those genres. Are those all on the table for you? Yeah. Well, not that the industry uh, has a perception that I, w I like all of that. I love horror, but I would like to keep exploring the genre in my own way. I, I'm not very interested in, in, in horror scripts that might come from the outside. But I, I'm open to other genres and other movies. And, and horror has that, you know, budget limit. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird to say that, but after you made a couple of movies, making a smaller movie, unless it means a lot to you, it's sort of like a step back or sideways in your career. But that doesn't mean that, you know, come across a, an excellent a horror movie that, you know, it's like $4 million and we'll go for it. But I want to go back to that creative impulse that, uh, that made me do Mama. I wrote Mama and I directed it and after Mama was released and the whole thing, I sort of fell into a different mode, which was more like listening to what the industry could do for me than I'm going to, you know, sit down and, and write a new story. It looks like you may have to finish this story first, though, before uh, you go on to oh, the definitely. next thing. Yeah. Oh, that was the question. <laughs> no, for me, it's, it's, it's so important. I think we have to, I want to complete the story. It's not a second part. For me, it's the second, the second half of the story. And I wouldn't let anyone do it. <laughs> <laughs> not that I, I'm the one to decide, but if I'm given the opportunity, I would love to do it. I, I like to yeah. end the show with um, yeah. asking filmmakers what the last great thing they saw was. You can't say your own film. So, oh, <laughs> uh, come on. I know you saw your movie again last night. But what, what have you seen recently that, that really uh, blew your wig back? I, I lived in a bubble for the last uh, year and a half, so it was more about making than than watching. I mean, unfortunately, that's the case sometimes. I hear that a lot from a lot of filmmakers, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. But I still got to see a few movies. I was very pleased by, by Dunkirk. Yeah, I'm hearing a, that a lot lately. It was a very visceral experience. Not a super sophisticated story, but as a visceral experience, was very, very interesting. And it's also like the way it's structured, even though it's like... A, tricky because it generates interest from just by like 
breaking the puzzle. Mm -hmm. It stimulates that part of your brain that wants to put the pieces together. So I think it's sort of a of a trick to compensate for a story that is not too sophisticated. But on the other hand, as I tell you, it got me more from the visceral effect than anything else. Yeah, that vision of uh, Tom Hardy's plane on fire is incredible. It's fantastic. But all the experience of being in that plane is really something. I never felt it before. And I think it's a teamwork, you know. it's a, Of course, it, it's from, it comes from the vision of, of Nolan, but so much about sound, about the visual effects that are so hyper-realistic and the editing. Well, I had a very similar feeling in it. So congratulations, Andy. I appreciate you coming in today, man. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Andy Muschietti and Kate Nibbs. And be sure to check out our next episode of The Big Picture. I'll be chatting with screenwriter turned filmmaker Danny Strong, who's got a new movie about J.D. Salinger called Rebel in the Rye. And so I'll see you guys next week. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about Black on the Air, hosted by the one and only, the great one, Larry Wilmore. Even though he's a Lakers fan, I still like him. I think he's talented. But he has all kinds of guests on, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Al Franken to Bernie Sanders. You name it, they're coming on. Pop culture, politics, newsmakers. And then at at the beginning of every podcast, Larry does a little riff about whatever is either sticking in his car or things that he's enjoying. Although he has been enjoying much lately the way the world's going. But uh, Larry will riff on anything. And then he has guests on. It's great. If you liked everything else that he's done, comedy-wise, if you loved his Comedy Central show, you will love this podcast. It is a medium that he has built for it. It's called Black on the Air, hosted by Larry Wilmore. Get it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.